Amen. All right, I um, I want to tackle something tonight that I couldn't get off off my mind. Um, remember the two questions that were put forward for us to discuss um, last week, of which we chose one was, "What does the church think about sex, and what does this church think about sex?" And um, I think we had a, um, I think we had an extremely profitable time. I don't know about you. I think, I think we uh, covered some good ground, and I think. Uh, um, discussions and conclusions were very wholesome and very grace-filled. And uh, thank you for the feedback of people who, um, you know, have taken the time to tweet and connect and say how helpful it, it, it really was, um, you know, to get some understanding on that. Um, one thing I want you to know about every subject we deal with, that um, um, when we... I'm looking for the words now. I accept and... Oh yeah, just um, uh, when we express, because of grace, our acceptance of where people are, who people are, and what people do, doesn't necessarily denote that, that I or we uh, approve of every aspect of that. There is a difference between acceptance and approval. And uh, it's because often, often people in the church can't handle that, that therefore we don't accept people, because... We're afraid that people will see our acceptance as approval and then sometimes we don't know how to carry on if we accept people but don't approve of where they are and that shows a great lack of maturity. So uh, we find ourselves accepting lots of things and lots of behaviours and practices and ways. doesn't necessarily mean we approve of them but that's where our ministry into that begins. It should never be an exclusion matter. It becomes a matter of what Paul said, that everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial and that's where we live from. So I say that to say that when we talk about things and when we express things, um, there is what we believe about acceptance and then there is the ministry of helping people uh, to live the best life uh, in terms of the kingdom of God manifesting in them. Now, my personal belief is that if we choose not to live the best life that we could live under the kingdom of God, it does not in any way detract from the fullness of the grace of God that's on our lives. So there should be no confusion there. Otherwise, we've gone back to a gospel of works, that my, my works can't save me, but my works can unsave me. Do you understand what I'm saying? So often we have a conflicting gospel. Our works can't save us and our works don't unsave us. Um, but our works can sure interfere with our relationships and our life and our equilibrium and our ability to just absorb and live the kingdom of God. So uh, I just wanted to say that because often the things we're talking about, there is a measure of controversy. Uh, as I said to you, one of the other things that was out there, which Brian Crosby, um, the, um, uh, the um, head teacher at uh, Manor, had uh, had had tweeted me and said, um, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this on, on Saturday, had said, um, I hear you don't believe in, in salvation anymore, with a smiley face and exclamation marks. And um, of course, I first of all sent back to him and said, uh, wow, that's news to me. Uh, and then I sent him a second tweet and said, I know what the problem is, Brian. I said, the problem is not that we don't believe in salvation. The problem is the extent to which we do believe in salvation is what's causing the problem. Um, so I'm going to have a cup of coffee with him and looking forward to talking through some of these things um, with him. So 
The other question that was on was what does the church believe about prayer and what does this church, uh, or it might be better to say what do I believe at the moment about prayer. Um, so I want to pose, pose a few thoughts for you that are really reflections on where I am in my journey. Um, these may not be the definitive last word on, on, on the doctrine of prayer in the Bible, they're just thoughts and, and observations from my journey of where I am, where I've come from, where I am, um, and, and what I think is worth mentioning. And then if we've got a little time at the end, you know, we, we didn't have much time um, last Wednesday for people to comment, and it probably would have taken us in wrong directions. Tonight we might have a little time, we'll just um, see how we go. I'd also like to mention at this point that we have a group that meets on a Monday night, very faithfully, have done for a long time, don't make a big song and dance about it, but faithfully meet and, and pray for me and for us and for the kingdom of God and and uh, um, I am very appreciative of that group, so in, in no way uh, do I want interpreted my comments that they are um, uh, in any way, um, yeah, invalidating that group, because lots will validate, but obviously one or two things I have to say about prayer are not the conventional things, which I guess you expect from me now. Um, so I, we do appreciate that group, want it to continue, but I just wanted to know that that, that is going on and, and that is greatly um, appreciated and honoured. And also also people who pray personally as well. So um, um, in, in, these are things that I wrestle with, okay? Might not be what you've wrestled with, might not be what you've wrestled with yet, but these are things that I wrestle with on the subject of prayer. Uh, and I am in no way seeking to dishonor or dismiss the act of prayer, nor to question the sincerity of those who pray lots in certain ways. Okay, so if we can establish that at the beginning, that allows me just to speak openly <coughs> about my thoughts. Um, from where I come, um, I was obviously raised, as most of you know, in not just in church, been a very um, participation-based, vibrant, uh, spirit-filled, Pentecostal environment where we were very busily involved and uh, um, uh, very actively part of the expression of what we believe the kingdom of God to be. And I, I thank God for my roots in that because, you know, we get to where we are because of where we were. Okay, so we must never dishonor where we were because the truth is you couldn't get to where you are without where you were. So our past delivered us to today and some things about it as we've thought about them have made us change uh, because we realize we've got a different view than that. Some things have helped us to build and formulate our understanding. So um, coming from that background, I, I've had to ask myself the question which I've had, had to ask about many things. Am I praying because of how it makes me feel or because of how I think it will make God feel. Now this is very important because um, I've asked this question in many areas of my life. I've told you this story before. I, I had to ask myself the question, did I come into ministry um, because of a call from God, which I think I did, 
But the reason I asked that question is I began to realize as I understood more about the psychology of life and, and child psychology and um, uh, um, sociology and the influence our environments have, have on them, um, that my parents were tremendous parents, um, but partly because of their background, um, in praise was given with one hand and taken away with the other. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but I understand that. I understand why, which I'm not going into. But for example, if I did good in an exam, it would be, you've done really well, but just be careful as you go through that door that your head can still fit through. Now, now sometimes we can handle those things, but we don't always realize the subconscious effect that that is having on us. Now, I don't blame my parents for that, because again, that's part of the social construct that they lived in and that I was born into. Uh, and the only, only arena I ever witnessed as a, as a child growing up where there was unrestrained approval was for ministry. So, so any ministry that was heard, any conference we attended, any preacher that we knew, all I ever heard was unrestrained approval, how amazing it was. So you can see why I had to ask myself the question, had I come into ministry because subconsciously that was where I could get unrestrained approval, or did I come into ministry because God had called me? Now, probably, if I'm honest, and the way social construct works, it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, which might shock some of you, but you know, I'd like to claim, oh, I'm so purely holy that I just came into it because, because of the call of God on my life. I was probably looking for something for me uh, as much as I was looking to serve God. So, so there's no condemnation in this because what I want you to realize that because of who we are as human beings, we have to always measure in anything what is it about this that I am doing for me and what is it that I'm doing for it, okay? Uh, and that affects relationships. It affects pretty much everything that we do. So, so prayer is one of those things that, that, that I have to look at, first of all, stepping back and say, was it to me um, a way of, of venting feelings that I had and that when I had done that, it made me feel better? Um, and how much did I stop to think, how does this make God feel? Because here's the confusion. If, if we don't measure this, we, we, we send signals that say that for God to do anything, he needs our prayers. Which means that, which means that God is actually reluctant and resistant to help a needy world unless little old me comes and says, oh God, please will you, Right? Now, now, I'm not saying that's totally our feeling, but I'm saying that that is much of what has seeped into our belief system and our understanding that we don't think about. We don't actually think about what is it that we're actually doing. So I'm, I'm more interested tonight than the mechanics of prayer that we look at ourselves to examine what, what is it that we're actually doing. And I've got, got a little statement about that in a, a little bit. So this was my first question. Am I praying because of how it makes me feel or because of how I think it will make God feel? Um, 
I was raised with statements like prayer moves the hand of God. I absolutely do not believe that. Uh, you have to know I don't believe that. I don't think prayer moves the hand of God. I think the hand of God moves because the hand of God moves. And that we get, we get often by revelation, to participate in the goodness of God already on the move. But to suggest that prayer moves the hand of God is that God's hand will not and cannot move unless we pray. Do you see where I'm coming from? Which shows a reluctant God. It shows a standoff God. He shows a God who says, well, I'm just waiting. And then, of course, the issue becomes, um, how much do you have to pray for that to happen? Do you have to ask once? Do you have to ask twice? Do you have to fast as well? Do you have to get more than one person to come into agreement? So then, how much is enough? And at what point do you know that that's enough? And where does that therefore become... um, Something that appears to be humanity having to twist the arm of God to get him to do something. You see where I'm coming from with this? So this, this does not discredit or, or, or disrespect um, in any way prayer as a thing. It's just beginning to ask the questions of what do we really believe about this and how does that fit and how do we shape ourselves to accommodate this thinking into our forward momentum? So, this is not the same subject, but, but it's the same thought process. I emailed a response to somebody this week. There's a, there's a, um, uh, a guy called Hayden Spensley, who is a, um, he's an Anglican curate down in, in Northampton, which I was extremely flattered because he started following me on Twitter, and then he, he asked me if I would consider becoming his spiritual director. Now, in the more contemplative field of spirituality, um, people engage in their life what, what they call spiritual directors, which is basically somebody who will reflect with you, somebody who you catch their heart, you love the direction they're going, and who is willing to spend time to reflect back with you and talk to you personally about your life and journey. And I was very flattered and, and honoured that um, Aidan... Um, would ask for that. We're still looking to to set that up. But we, we're in pretty regular um, communication. And he sent me a question because he has to he has a question and answer session down in the parish on Sunday about praise and worship. So because he listens to our stuff online, um, Hayden had been hearing stuff that we'd said and asked me which you know which was a good message to look at. Well, you know, I had to say uh, I've never preached a specific message about that, but I have mentioned it in many messages. Um, but I wanted to respond to him um, because how we perceive praise and worship is pretty much parallel to how we perceive prayer. Okay? These uh, spiritual practices of prayer and praise and worship. So, so this is what I sent to him, okay? So, does your wife sit around hoping you'll come into her presence and sing songs to her? with your arms raised, if you really mean it, for 40 minutes, does that cause her presence to come in the room? Does she require some fast, upbeat songs to lift the mood, followed by slow songs to prove how intimate we're feeling in that moment? Or would praise and worship of and towards her be much more appreciated if it was more organic and natural? Does God need praise and worship? 
is he tells us we've convinced ourselves that a certain type and way of worshipping is essential. Even more important, do we get off on it? Is it really about what it does and says about God or what it does and says about us? I've said many times, praise and worship are the drug of choice for many Christians. We get high on it and can then settle down to hear the word in our defrustrated, mellowed state. If worship is what God is looking for, he is a narcissist, full stop, no argument. Having said all that, I am for praise and worship. I'm in no way anti-praise and worship. Keep loving me. I just think we've elevated it or formulated it for the purpose of creating an atmosphere. Nothing wrong with that, so long as we're honest about it and don't give it a mystical, magical place beyond its reality. People do not get into substance abuse or any other addiction for the substance or things uh, that they, they take. They do it because of its mood-altering capacity. Therefore, drug or alcohol users do it for the sole purpose of altering their mood. It's not technically the drug that they're addicted to, but the mood-altering experience. Has this and does this happen in praise and worship? Is that why we love it, rather than a compulsion to worship God? Again, nothing wrong with the desire for or doing things which alter one's mood, uh, but we can become addicted to the things which cause the altering of our mood. Okay? Food would be another example in this category. So, praise and worship is good. We should do it. But the reason and mechanics of it should not be presented always as a God thing. Sometimes, be honest, the singing and carrying on is helping us because we had an awful week. I stopped calling the singing praise and worship some years ago and now just say we're going to sing a bit. After all, how do I know if what I'm doing when I do it is considered by God to be praise and worship? Surely that's his decision. He might be thinking, hey up, because God is a Yorkshireman. <laughs> They're singing again, driving me nuts, never did like that song. Or, where in heaven did they get those dispensationalist, Calvinist, law-driven lyrics from? That's really screwy. Somebody tell me which Bible they're reading. Uh, and then I also said, hey, I miss, this, miss saying this. Is God most worshipped by us singing songs to him or by our reflecting his love and humility in and to a broken world? I guess I'm just strongly objecting to the mutation that has declared praise and worship to be just singing, dancing, banner-waving, arg, for the reasons already shared. Okay? So, you see where, on, on the issue of praise and worship, we've got a similar challenge that we have to face, a similar question we have to ask, and, and it makes us uncomfortable, partly because we don't want to be honest that maybe, maybe that's true. I would like to say I've always come in to worship God because I want to worship God, but I have to be honest and say I think sometimes I came in to get in a, a frame of mind and have a feeling that superseded what happened that week. Now, like I say, nothing wrong with that, as long as we're honest. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so as we look at this subject of prayer, we've got the same kind of challenge that we, we have to face. And so here's, here's the statement that I wanted to make about Prayer. Instead of thinking, what are we saying to God in our prayer? Maybe we should be asking the question, what are my prayers saying about God? Let me say that again. It's very important. Instead of thinking, what are we saying to God in our prayer? 
maybe we should be asking the question, what are my prayers saying about God? Because if we listen, some of our prayers are saying, God doesn't care. God's slow to act. God's only going to move if we can convince him that he ought to move. Which therefore means God loves some people more than others because he acts quicker and does more. What about the ones that don't get healed? What about the ones that don't get their bills paid or don't get answered? And if we're not careful, the way that we pray actually says things about God which are not true. That's why I say that then I begin to realize when we're doing that that we were praying more for our benefit than we were for God's benefit, okay? We're getting stuff off our chest, we're saying things. So, so it's quite fascinating when you begin to look then in the, in the Gospels, particularly um, at how prayer is mentioned. Um, now before we go there, I'm going to quote that quote again because I want this to get in your spirit. Instead of thinking, what are we saying to God in our prayer? Maybe we should be asking the question, what are my prayers saying about God? The good thing about if you answer that question is it puts you focused on who you believe God to be and then you can only pray according to who you believe that he is, right? And then that changes how we pray and what we pray, okay? So hopefully we don't get stuck in. I remember being in one one meeting across in Manchester where uh, it it was during election time way, way back in, in the 80s. And uh, they decided before the speaker got up to talk to us about our voting. And this was in, the, uh, in the, the theatre at Manchester University. And they said, we're going to have a time of prayer. Well, it wasn't all that difficult to figure out which political persuasion the people were from the moment they stood up to pray. So there were people, of course, as it was then, you know, Lord, we just thank you for such a leader as Margaret Thatcher, for how she's blessed the country and prospered the country and for her values. And then someone else would get up and say, Lord, we just ask you'll help us under this present government that you will deliver us from the hardships that they are bringing and that you will restore a righteous, caring government. I mean, seriously, was it you were there? Was it as blunt as that? And it almost turned into a prayer fight. It, seriously, there was a prayer fight going on. And that does not honor God. And it, it actually, it dishonors the practice of prayer. And it devalues the truth of that practice of prayer. However, if we don't rein our thinking in, we get as silly as that. We pray politically, we pray personally in ways that actually are saying something about God that we, we actually, we don't have the right to say. He needs to be who he is, okay? So, I want to move on to, to a little verse in, well, it's actually a few verses, but I'll summarize it in one verse, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, because it makes a statement there. It uses this phrase, pray without ceasing. Okay. Now, um, the more I've sought to defend, might be the right word, I don't know, defend some of our position on, on the true gospel, uh, the more I've realized that uh, people come out the woodwork and play the theologian card. Throw the theologian card down. But of course, there's a way to answer that because I've found um, most 
People who say they believe the Bible only believe the bits of the Bible that support what it is that they believe. Um, and I, I, again, I can be guilty of the same thing. I have to be careful. One of the things about saying I might not be right about everything is it allows you to read the Bible not through a defensive perspective, to, but to say, am I wrong? Is this can, which is why we have these conversations. You know, some churches you couldn't talk about prayer in the way I'm talking about because in the first five minutes people would have shut down and said, no, that's not prayer. prayer. We believe in prayer. Well, I believe in prayer, but we're, we're having a mature conversation because we don't come from the position that whatever we say tonight is right. We come from the position that whatever we say tonight is where we are in our journey. It's what we have understood and what we're seeking to understand. So, Here's the problem. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? It means you've got to pray all the time. Right? So if people, when people say, I take the Bible on face value, then you've got to take this on face value. So it means when you're awake, when you're asleep. Day and night, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you've got to pray without stopping. Okay? So if prayer is what we've often been told prayer is, you can't do that. So, so by the same rules of often people who would push prayer in a certain way, therefore you're going to come under condemnation because you can't fulfill what it is that you've been asked to do. Now, it's not wrong to say pray without ceasing, okay? What it is questioning is what you define as prayer because if what you define as prayer can be going on even when you don't know it's going on, even when you are having a conversation at work or closing a business deal or watching the TV or sleeping, which it must mean, it must then mean that prayer is significant, but prayer might not be the narrow little thing that we defined it to be. We had a little thing about those three or four verses there many years ago that I put together that we called it this is what is required, persistent cheerfulness, evident gentleness, zero anxiety, and a prayer life. Those four things, okay? And what are in those verses? It calls us to persistent cheerfulness, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, okay? Persistent cheerfulness. So even in our challenges, even in the false rumors, even in everything else, we are called in Christ to be persistently cheerful, because you're back to something else I taught um, a few weeks ago, that we have to take the if out of if God is for us, okay? Faith takes the if out of if God is for us. And faith says God is for us, so who can be against us? That's where persistent cheerfulness comes from. But also an evident gentleness. There's got to be a softness to how we deal, how we approach not just, not just people who might, be causing us a problem, but how we approach scripture, how we approach truth, how we approach doctrine, an evident gentleness that says, you know what, God loves us, the Father loves us, and uh, he knows that we're human beings, and he knows that we're wrestling with these challenges, and there's an evident gentleness that, that will stop you being condemning towards yourself as well. Be gentle with yourself, and let it be evident. And uh, of course, zero anxiety, you know, Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow don't worry your father knows what you have need of that's easier said than done but we're called to that and of course the last one on that is is 
if it's prayer without ceasing, it has to mean a prayer life and not a prayer time. Now, I, I'm concerned that unless our thoughts about prayer become more expansive, that we become challenged to have prayer times rather than have a prayer life. Uh, and if we shape prayer as a prayer time, a time when we pray, not that we shouldn't have a time when we pray, and it, it should be part of it, and however that works best for you, it should be so. But the problem is, if we focused on a prayer time, all those issues that I've expressed that are dangerous about prayer then come on the scene. Prayer being about me, prayer being about changing my mood rather than changing God's mood. That me being concerned about what I'm saying to God in prayer rather than asking the question, what are my prayers saying about God? But if we have a prayer life, it means that the expression of prayer is something that is happening in a, in a much broader, expansive context of conversation, ongoing relational conversation with the Father. So, um, persistent cheerfulness, evident gentleness, zero anxiety, a prayer life is, is, what we, is what we should be looking for in this. Um, and that's all of us. Because again, the other thing can be we can start to categorize people uh, who we think are good with words, and because they, they put time aside, we begin to categorize people, uh, when actually that's what some people are best at doing. That's what suits some people. Others, I have found my, my prayer life is much more conversational. It's, it's ongoing. It goes on throughout the day. It goes on throughout the night. It's, I do take specific times at time to reflect and to think and and to have communion with the Father. But the bigger part of my experience of prayer is just what goes on all the time. It's what goes on now as I'm talking to you and kind of just trying to hear the Father and listen and speak and share. So let's, let's come back to Jesus. Because uh, again, I, one of the things I, I tweeted out was that we have become far too obsessed uh, to fulfill what the Apostle Paul says and not quite so challenged to necessarily fulfill what Jesus says. Um, there's, when, when you begin to look at the words of Jesus, there's, there's not a lot of wiggle room um, in terms of how we treat our enemies, how we govern ourselves, how we, how we behave towards one another. When, when you get to Paul, who was a man who was then dealing with the problems in the church, what that creates for us is more wiggle room. Okay? So we can look at how Paul reacted to a situation, and then we try to replicate Paul's reaction to that situation, because after all, Paul did it. I, I've started to be more focused on, okay, I know what Paul did, and I've got to look at that culturally and specifically and humanly, because Paul was a man. Yeah, he was touched by God, but you know, we won't get into all the issues of if Paul never made a mistake, then we're going to have to take some bits out of, out of Paul's letters. But when you begin to reflect that against Jesus and, and, and loving your enemies and forgiving and giving your cloak and all that, it, we don't get a lot of wiggle room. And uh, 
it's much easier to follow Paul than it is to follow Jesus. And that's my challenge, is to try and understand. Thank, thank God for Paul, thank God for his ministry, thank God for his revelation. But trying to really get right back to source and say, okay, but what did Jesus say about this? Because um, Jesus and prayer is why I said that. Jesus prayed, okay, we know that, because we're told in the Gospels that he prayed. Uh, sometimes he prayed all night. Um, but we're not told what he prayed. We're not even told how he prayed. Now I'm going to come to what he said to us about, about prayer, but wouldn't you think if, if prayer was this very, very, very specific thing that we would have a lot more indication of, of when Jesus prayed, what he prayed about and how he prayed. But he says he went up a mountain to pray. And in the morning, right, that's it. The night's gone. He prayed all night. No indications. So we actually only in the Gospels have um, notice of what he prayed um, really on two occasions, which is the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion when um, he wanted his disciples to pray with him and they kept falling asleep. And, uh, you know, he says he, he went and he fell on his, his knees and he prayed to the Father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not what I want, but what you will be done. Uh, that prayer is fascinating for several reasons. First of all, Jesus, who is the Word incarnate, he's the one sent by God as the Savior of the world, would even say to the Father, if it's possible... Don't let me have to do this. That, I find that tremendously encouraging because that's the human side, that's the incarnate side of Jesus. This hurts. I, I can see the reason for this, but if there's another way that's not so painful, I'd prefer that. Interesting, isn't it? So Jesus sent from the Father, one with the Father, God and very God, man and very man, He's almost, if you can get, he's almost negotiating with himself. <laughs> you know, I and the Father are one. He's almost, he's almost having a, an internal conversation with himself, with the Father. Well, I'd like not to, and if it's possible, but, you know, concluding within his heart, this is the way that things have to be. Which also shows that, that um, we are not exempt from suffering in the process of coming to resurrection. Okay. How interesting that, that Jesus' prayer there should be, should be a prayer that dealt with the whole thing of suffering. And, and he embraced the suffering wife for the joy that was set before him, he endured. He didn't enjoy, but he endured. So, so we know that in prayer sometimes it's connected to our endurance, not our enjoyment, but because of the joy that's set before us, which with Jesus for, was, was resurrection. And you know, I've, I've pushed this point hard that the, the wonder of the gospel is that dead things can live again. Um, and then the other in interesting point about Jesus' conversation with the Father um, absolutely blows the lid off Calvinism. If you don't know what Calvinism is, um, be thankful uh, I saw I'm not a Calvinist. Calvinists believe that God is sovereign. Uh, everything has been planned from before time began. That we are simply exercising that plan, but 
Calvinism also says that if you were chosen to be saved, you will be saved. And if you were chosen to be damned, you'll be damned. Well, you know, I still have to say, I, I struggle to connect that with the God who so loves the world to, to make those kind of decisions. So I'm so not a Calvinist, if you understand what, what one is. I don't believe in the total depravity of man, which they believe in. I don't believe in original sin the way that they believe in it. So lots of things there. That, But um, the reason I say that is then when Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will but your will be done, means that Jesus had a will of his own and that he could have exercised that will, but he subjected that will to the will of the Father. And that if Jesus hadn't subjected his will to the will of the Father, the Father's will would not have been done. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because the Father's will was that Jesus would be the sacrifice, that Jesus would be the one who would bring the Father's love to humanity, who would take care of the sin issue. But Jesus was saying, I have to yield my will to your will for your will to happen. Now, that also happened in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus taught us to pray when he said, I want you to pray your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth like it is in heaven. But if his will is going to be done anyway, then you wouldn't need to pray that, would you? It's Jesus playing games with us, trying to make us feel important. Oh, well, we prayed your will be done. Well, if his will is going to be done anyway, I actually don't need to pray it. So the fact I need to pray it and was taught by Jesus to pray it, means that the will of God is not inevitable. The will of what God really wants to happen is possible, but it's the partnership with humanity. So, so, so that's why I say prayer is important, but not necessarily always important in the way that, that, that we said. So that, that's one instance of Jesus praying. The other instance is, is, for those who've been around church for any time, the famous prayer of Jesus found in John 17, where he... Um, he's getting ready to give his life. It's the final days of his life. And he prays for his disciples. And he also prays for the world. And one of his great uh, statements in that is that I pray that they may be one as we are one. In other words, his focus was on people having the same fellowship with the Father as the Father and the Son have together. Now, I'm not here to, to, to tear that um, uh chapter apart verse by verse because it's an excellent chapter I'm not even here to try and explain it you can read it and read it in the context of what we have to say tonight but the point I'm making is that those are the only two times that we give a notice of what Jesus prayed so in all of his life prayer as a practice was important but the specifics of that prayer don't seem to be as important as we might have made it because I believe Jesus had a prayer life and not a prayer time therefore prayer was more than just saying things and also in Jesus prayer it was not about what he was saying to God in his prayers but what his prayers were saying about God okay so prayer becomes more of a declaration about God than it is a pleading with God do you understand what I'm saying there okay so now having said that, we've also been given room, particularly in the Psalms, when we're a bit upset and we're completely ticked to burn off some steam by, by um, giving, giving God a seeing to by our prayers. Just read some of the Psalms, they're quite, quite interesting. 
so some of the anger and frustration comes out. Wonderful thing is God doesn't seem averse to that. You know, he's like, okay, get it out, son, there you go. Um, but that's not prayer in the sense of changing the world prayer. That's prayer in the sense of if I don't let this out, I'm going to bust. So there's lots of areas where I think we, we have to broaden our, our thinking. So um, only two times then uh, are we told about detail of Jesus' prayer. Now, um, in Luke 18 uh, and chapter, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 18 and verse 1. Jesus spoke a parable to them um, and he said this, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And then he told a story about a lady who was appealing for justice. And again, I'm not, I don't want to take the time to break that down. Some of these things, you go away and read them in the light of the framework and direction that I'm giving you. So one of the problems is, um, I've learned this, that Sometimes if I give you a definitive on stuff, you won't go and look at it and decide. You think, well, that's because he said. You've got to come to some of these things from your own heart and spirit because you've been pointed in the direction. So he, he spoke a parable to them but said that men always ought to pray and not, pray and not lose heart. Now, the phrase that grabbed me was that, that statement of ought to pray and not lose heart. Ought to pray and not lose heart. So... If you invert that, flip it on its head, look at it from the other direction, uh, it means not losing heart is the evidence of whatever we deem prayer to be. So it's not as specific about what prayer is, it's the issue of when we don't lose heart, that is the expression of, of whatever we deem prayer to be, not losing heart. That's the point to me of prayer. The point of prayer is not getting God to do stuff. The point of prayer is not losing heart. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because God can manage without us if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. God doesn't have his goodness and his faithfulness dictated by when we decide to get a hold of him. That's why I, I cannot tell you how irritated I get when I watch things like Christian TV and people are talking about revival. It bugs me something terrible because, because what that's saying about God is that God withholds himself. Or a nation that behaves badly, regardless of the fact that it is finished through what Jesus did, God's going to let you suffer. And therefore, how good does a nation have to be? What does a people have to do? How many people have to pray? And how often? And how much do they have to pray? And with what words do they have to pray for God to suddenly say, okay, I'm going to bless you, or I'm going to bless that family, or I'm going to bless this nation, or I'm going to send this mystical thing called revival. Okay? I am very much in the in the Matthew school, where he says, and he did tell us to pray, he said, pray the Lord of the harvest, not that he'll send a harvest, not that he'll send revival, pray the Lord of the harvest, that he'll send laborers into the harvest field. Why? Because he just told them the fields are white to harvest. The problem's not the harvest, the problem is the laborers. Why is there a problem with the laborers? Because often we're not believing about our world what God believes about our world, and we don't believe about God who God says that he is. So we miss the point in there, and we create religion and institution rather than the harvest of the kingdom of God. You understand what I'm saying? So, so 
I, I think there there's a connection from the words of Jesus that, that not losing heart is the evidence of whatever we deem prayer to be. So if, if that is true, in essence, it actually is more about us than it is about God. And it's one of those wonderful gifts that God gives to us because he knows sometimes what we need to help us that he doesn't need to help him. Because our prayers don't make him one bit more powerful, one bit more willing, one bit more loving, one bit more desirous to help, right? They're not changing God. Our prayers are not there to change God or the mind of God. Our prayers are there to change us and the mind of us. So when we understand that, it takes the pressure off of thinking the only way the world will change is if I pray and if I pray enough and if I pray in the right way and says, do you know what? God's partnered with me so that that not that I change his mind but that, that I as I embrace the truth of this, change my mind and as my mind is changed, I begin to think his thoughts and I begin to see things with his eyes so instead of like Paul said we are we live by faith and not by sight instead of living by natural and praying from natural sight then we're doing what the Bible says which we pray in the spirit which we're always praying not from sight but from faith okay so do you see why I'm saying I'm, this is not an anti-prayer message this is an evaluate prayer message and evaluate us and, and have a correct image of God in all of this Um, Okay, so let's say another couple of things about Jesus. Jesus said about prayer, don't be like hypocrites. Um, By that he meant, he qualified it, he said because Jesus said, I watch people come into the temple and I watch them pray beautiful prayers with nice words. Uh, and also making sure everybody else knows that they're a person of prayer. And not only do they pray, but they can pray. And that in his case, the Jewish doctrine of their prayer was correct and in line. Um, Jesus himself said, I call that hypocritical. Which means that the point of prayer is, is not about getting something right. Okay, Because that's what they were doing. They were getting it right. We pray, we come to the temple, we say the right words, you know, we repeat the right scriptures, and Jesus said, hypocrites, a bunch of hypocrites. Why? Because they were really praying, he said, to be seen. Okay? And, and I want to qualify that. When he says praying to be seen, it doesn't just mean be seen by others, but to be seen by themselves. We can get so impressed with ourselves. You know, some people are so self-absorbed that um, their life is built on the wonderful impression that they have of themselves. You know, I've got this down, I, I can pray wonderfully. And, you know, so you get another example Jesus gave. He says, he says, one of these guys came into the synagogue and he's praying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this man. That I'm. Now, you've got to put that into modern English. He's saying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm holy. I thank you, Lord, that I don't sin. I thank you, Lord, that I've never committed adultery like X, or I've never stolen like X, or I don't use bad language like X, or my sexuality is not questioned like Y. That's literally what was going on. I thank you, Lord, that I am not. And then Jesus said there was a, there was a, um, 
someone else there who was so ashamed that they didn't want to even be seen in public, who all that they said was, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said these words, said, which prayer do you think was heard? Which prayer do you think was heard? One said nothing more than, than to express a position of humility. Uh, the other one was full of all the right scriptures and all the right... Now, again, I have to be careful here because that doesn't therefore mean that if you pray good scriptures uh, and you make good declarations that you are necessarily being a hypocrite, okay? So, so don't misunderstand me, but that can be the case, can't it? And that's what I was trying to drive at you, how sometimes flying under the radar is, our, is, is this thing that is praying for our benefit and we don't often recognize it. It has to start with the humility of my own brokenness and feeling the pain of my own failure so that I can feel the brokenness and pain of the world and so that in that I can reflect God's attitude towards the brokenness and pain of the world. So, so um, he said, don't be like hypocrites. Um, uh, don't think that because you could do it publicly, it means something. And he said, don't, don't think that repetition will somehow swing things for you. You know, what he's really driving at there is don't think that if you think you've got the right words and you say them enough, that somehow that's going to swing things in your favor or for people. Jesus himself actually said these things in Matthew chapter 6. And he also said, don't fret because the Father knows what you need. Right? Uh, and then comes the, this is how you should pray. The bit that most of you will be familiar with. This then is how you should pray. Our Father art in heaven. So it's Jesus' one real guidance to the question of, of prayer. Um, what I do want you to notice with that is Jesus didn't say, this then is what you should pray. So I find it, fascinating the Lord's prayer is a wonderful prayer but but Jesus didn't say this then is what you should pray <laughs> so the problem is however you know the Lord's prayer can become the magic prayer well let's pray the Lord's prayer and see the issue we have here because of the goodness and the kindness and the faithfulness of God he will hear us and answer us and help us and be present for us even when sometimes our motives are off or when we get it wrong. But he didn't say this is what you should pray. He said this is how you should pray. So it's, it's the structure, it's the elements that are there and the key structure being right in the beginning when he said this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven. So the immediate focus is on the Father. Remember I told you Jesus never came to bring you to God. Jesus never came to bring the world to God. You cannot find anywhere, anywhere in the Gospels that Jesus came to bring the world to God. It's not there. He came for one purpose, to bring the world to the Father, which is a very different thing. See, the world was saturated with experiences of gods and what gods were like. They had gods coming out of their ears in the Roman culture and the Greek culture. So the last thing they needed, even in, in Hebrew culture, was somebody coming and saying, I'll lead you to God. You, they were two a penny in the marketplace. I'll lead you to God. I'll sell you a God. I'll build you a God. You know, I'll buy your God. So can you see why Jesus produced an ungodlike God? said, this God's not interested in being your God. 
It's the furthest thing from his mind. He wants to be your father. Totally different concept. That's why he's the ungodlike God, because he's the God who doesn't want to be God. He wants to be father. So, so, so Jesus, you see this reflected now when he said, listen, your prayers have to be focused through the lens of a father. Now that, that's part of my... Um, part of my... Um, challenge thinking is that when we focus on the power aspect it directs us to the God aspect when we focus on the goodness and faithfulness aspect it, de- it, it deflects us to the father aspect and I actually think it's been a strategy of the enemy to get the church focused on the power of God I really do Now, God is powerful and his power is wonderful, but it's a deflection because gods are powerful. So if he can get us thinking God, without doubt he'll get us to create a religion and an institution because that's what you do when you have gods. So if he can deflect us from coming to the Father and direct us to coming to God, if he can point us always to power rather than to goodness and faithfulness, he, he, he deflects the direction of, of our spiritual life and, and our relationship with the Father. So, so we weren't taught to pray to God by Jesus. He said, here's where you begin. Okay? This is not what, this is how. Our Father our father okay that was as blasphemous to the jews as the rumor that the head teacher at manor said about me because they wouldn't even speak the name of god they wouldn't write the word yahweh they wouldn't write the whole word they would miss letters out because literally if, if you were writing it in english you'd write gd G underscore D, because they wouldn't even dare write the name of God. God was so removed, so holy, so, 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 so distinct in who he was that you couldn't relate. And along comes Jesus and says, he's your father who you're looking for. So, so the focus has to be, we look at it through a father's heart, which is why I said, what do my prayers say about God? Do they reflect how a father would be? Do they reflect how a father would think? Do they reflect what a father would do in his graciousness and his kindness and his mercy and his love for children? So, so our father is the focus who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Now, again, I've told you, I think I've taught nonsense about that and I've heard nonsense taught. Uh, there's only one name mentioned in that verse and it's not Jehovah or Elohim or El Shaddai or any of the other Bible names. There's one name mentioned in that verse, Father. Hallowed be your name. He's trying to get us focused, reverencing. If he's the father, we're all right. Okay? And then, of course, he goes on to say, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth like it is in heaven, which, which is saying, you've got to appreciate I'm the father and the desire is this, as in heaven, so in earth. As in heaven, so in earth. That that's our portion. As in heaven, so in earth. We come with a spirit that says, Father, because you're our Father, as it is in heaven, so it can be in the earth. And our heart and desire just simply comes to embrace that will and engage that will and at least permit that will to, to saturate our lives and then all of our life being a continuing expression of, 
of physical and actual and mental and sleeping and, and speaking conversation with the Father. Uh, okay, so let's, let's wind up um, what I want to say. So an expectation of heaven's presence in earth's happening is the point. Um, now I find this next thing particularly interesting, mainly because it is, as I see it, uh, misrepresented as a quote. Um, let me read it to you from, from Luke chapter 19. Okay, from verse 45. Then he, Jesus, entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So they were looking to kill Jesus because what he was saying upset all their, you know, I had this down, I was fine, and then you've said this, and now what am I supposed to do? Maybe a bit like tonight, I don't know. Hopefully you're not trying to kill me afterwards. But this is, this is the phrase that is a misrepresented quote. My house will be a house of prayer. Okay? So people have latched on that, that. That God's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. The problem is that we've interpreted prayer to be some of the things that I've said I don't believe prayer to be. And then said that that's what it's about. So... Um, this statement about house of prayer is only in the, the three references in the Gospels to the same incident, which is Jesus turning over the tables of the money changers, you know, scattering the doves and driving out the, the animals that were in the temple court at the time of the, time of the feast. And I'll, I'll say a little comment about that in, in just a moment. But if you look at the origin of Jesus' statement about house of prayer, you find it in the chapter that we finished with on Saturday, Isaiah 56, which is the one, remember we talked about the eunuch and the foreigners and the excluded. And uh, interesting, this statement, where, where Jesus quoted it from, is this very chapter that we talked about at the end of our talk on, on Saturday night in Isaiah 56. So I'm going to give you some smatterings of Isaiah 56, not all the verses, but this is what the Lord says. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely exclude me. And let you, no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. Remember the foreigners and the eunuchs were excluded even by law. Uh, for this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, remember we said the Sabbath is not coming to church on Sunday, it's the finished work that God has finished the work on our behalf and that man's gospel is if you, God's gospel is because I. That's the, that's the simple difference between knowing whether it's man's gospel or God's gospel. Man's gospel is if you. Remember we talked about the baptism in, in Acts chapter 8, the verse that's not there. If you believe with all your heart you may and that verse is not there. Because man's gospel is if you, but God's gospel is because I, okay? 
So here the eunuchs and the, the, the people of color and the foreigners who were all excluded from, from worship at the temple. To them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the one place where house of prayer is mentioned in the Old Testament. And this is where Jesus was quoting from. Now, um, what I want you to notice is that the story, and I'm coming to the statement in a moment, but when Jesus was driving out those who were exchanging money and, and selling animals and scattering doves and all that, turning over tables, um, this all happened in the court of the Gentiles. Remember we talked about that on Saturday. That it's like, come to Jerusalem, worship our God, but you can stay in this bit. Okay? You could not leave the court of the Gentiles unless you were a Jew. So, so your experience of, of the religious environment and the God you'd gone to worship is, thank you, you can stay in this outside place, but you're not welcome in here. You can't come and worship. You can't come and be a priest. You can't come and be accepted as one of the sons and daughters. You know, we're glad you're here, but, you know, and uh, if you weren't a foreigner, if you weren't a eunuch, right, then you could come in. But now God speaks in Isaiah 56 and says, because I, right, because I finished the work, because of what I did, I need you to know there is no court of the Gentiles in my kingdom, okay? Eunuchs are not accepted. People who haven't got the right stuff are not accepted. People are not accepted because he said, I'll bring you to my house of prayer. Now, um, what also you need to know historically is that um, that the selling of doves, the, the money and all that was going on in the court of the Gentiles. Isn't it fascinating? They wouldn't let that in the, our place, but the court of the Gentiles, you know, basically, we'll do all that there. So there's all this going on. And, and really, the, the kind of the nice idea was, well, they come from a long distance and they can buy a sacrifice here. They can buy a dove if they're poor. They can also change their money that they bring to the right currency to spend in the temple to get these animals. But Jesus' response would suggest that what they thought they were providing as a favor to the non-Jews was seen as indulgent, shady business. More concerned with profit, numbers, and appearance than forgiveness, extravagant grace, and inclusion. It seemed like they were providing a service, but that service was screaming out, you are not included, you don't have forgiveness, you don't have grace. And you say, how do you know that? Because that's why Jesus turned over the money tables and scattered the animals because he said, this is not how it's supposed to be. Um, that word, a, a, when Jesus quoted it um, in... In Luke, he says, he says, you've turned it into a den of thieves. You've changed the house of prayer into a den of thieves. It's interesting that the word we translate den is, can be translated cave or cavern or den or hideout. Um, and the word that's translated robbers, you've, ch you've turned my house of prayer into a den of robbers, 
he can be translated as a plunderer. You know what a plunderer is? Somebody who takes something from somebody that they should not be taking, or a robber or a highwayman. So, so here's my little concoction of definition of that. The temple had become a hideout for plunderers. Emotional, spiritual, financial. Now I find that challenging because has the church become a hideout for plunderers and now we're actually doing the same thing in our equivalent today to people in their relationship towards the church and now we're emotionally, spiritually and financially plundering people. That's just a sobering thought. Okay, let me come back to, to this thing for my final thought. So Jesus said you've turned my house into a den of robbers. You've turned, and, and it's supposed to be called a house of prayer. But the only place house of prayer is mentioned is in Isaiah 56. The interesting thing is that it would seem that, that prayer is more attached um, to, to the honesty of life than it is to words alone. And that when house of prayer is referred to in Isaiah 56, it's got very little to do with prayer and everything to do with acceptance. Because Isaiah 56 is not a chapter about prayer, it's a chapter about acceptance. Therefore, I have to conclude this, that what I've meant by a house of prayer is a house where people come and pray and pray prayers. And when actually what God meant by a house of prayer was a house where everybody finds acceptance. And that the greatest prayer to God is that when we, with all our faults and failures and idiosyncrasies and differences and, and issues come together that acceptance comes out of the community that becomes a house of prayer for all nations because here's the problem all nations are not allowed to be part of the community of Israel that's why he said about the units and foreigners you'll get an inheritance better than sons and daughters because they could never be sons and daughters. So a house of prayer for all nations is not a declaration of we should open a building where for 24 hours a day we can say things about the nations. House of prayer for all nations is when we are accepting of the differences and the challenges and realize the grace of God is bigger than all that and we allow people to bring their lives into the flow of the grace of God. That to me is what Jesus meant when he said about a house of prayer because when he cast over the money tables it wasn't about who was praying and who wasn't praying in the temple it was about who was being included and who wasn't being included which is why I said that this is a misrepresented phrase that when you just hear it on its own God wants a house of prayer for all nations we get right down the wrong track how many of you think when we come in the Father's name and know the Father and want what is in heaven to be manifest in the earth, that at the core of that is a wonderful spirit of love and inclusion and forgiveness and, and grace and kindness. So that then when I pray, as I said to you at the beginning, it's not about the words that I am praying, but it's about what are my prayers saying about God? Are my prayers saying about this inclusive forgiving, gracious, kind God. So I, I find no room for people praying that God will judge the unrighteous. I find no place for that. Now, we, we can throw scriptures around and wrestle some of those things and you know I'm happy to, to kind of arm wrestle some of those things. But I've had a really good look at this and you know... Um, 
Everything that comes out of this is a spirit of grace. It's a wonderful spirit because he takes all guilt and condemnation off the person trying to be the prayer. And he takes all responsibility from the prayer for the condition of our world. And therefore doesn't put the pride on the prayer if we happen to see a prayer answer that said... God answered prayer. Yet, that's a good testimony, but sometimes what I'm telling you is God answered my prayer. I pray right. God listened to me. God answered my prayer. It's so easy for us to slip from testimony into bragging. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then for that brag, not to be saying what needs to be said about the goodness and the the graciousness of God. So, I'm not going to not going to say anymore. I think I've said enough on that to, to, to stir the barrel um, and challenge our thinking. And uh, please pray. Please do. This is not a don't pray. Please pray. But please just take on board some of the spirit of what I've, I've talked to you about because um, that's where my heart is. That's why I said, you know, what does the church believe about prayer? It's more accurate to say, that's what I believe about prayer at the moment. So uh, we've got a few minutes. All right, Finn, has anybody got anything you would like to add in or say, Steve, have you got, have you got a mic there, boys? Um, I just want to say thank you because you've really helped me tonight. Good. Um, it's quite complex prayer, isn't it? I think about and think, well, what am I meant to be praying? And then I think, Mm. well, it's it's not what you're meant to be praying. It's like like you said, it's about between you and God, isn't it? You're talking to your best mate, aren't you? You're talking to your dad. Um, I just looked on on the internet. I wondered what the definition of a prayer was. And it says, a solemn request for help or expression of thanks addressed to God or another deity. The first bit I don't like, a solemn request for help. Like solemn, solemn always points out to me like, my God, this is miserable, isn't it? It's not, it's not a happy thing, is it? And then it says, an expression of thanks addressed to God or another deity. I think that's where I've gone wrong in the past. I remember coming to all night prayer years and years and years ago and uh, start at 11 o'clock and we'd be sat over there and I, I'd, I'd be killing myself to keep awake before I passed 11. It was like, what am I doing here? What's the point of this? Because I'm getting absolutely nothing from this. I'm not connecting with God. and I really don't know what I'm meant to be doing. And I've always found it in the past quite confusing about why am I praying and what am I meant to be praying? And the more I do pray, and I think it's really, really important that you pray. Um, like for, for Richard, does God know what's going to happen to Richard anyway? Or is it like a little nudge to God where we're saying, please, please help him? I've been in positions in my life where I've been on my knees and I've pleaded with him to help me because I don't know where to go sometimes. You don't know where to go in one direction or another. And I really do think it's important that you get answers from God sometimes, don't you? Yeah? I don't know whether anybody else believes in that or thinks the same. But I know I've been in that position before. Um, there's... There's one bit in the Bible and it says, somewhere Matthew, I think. It says, 
Truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about mm-hmm. anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with, with them. I, I don't understand it. Why, why is it two or three that gather together? It's like you'll get an answer if there's two or three of you, but you won't if you're on your own sort of thing. Can, can you just give us some comments on yeah. that? Yeah, there's, there's lots of those little things. Yeah, there's lo- lots of those things to wrestle with. Um, that's why I say I haven't given you the definitive, conclusive, you know, all-encompassing teaching on prayer. Some things you've got you to um, wrestle with because, you know, if you pray according to his will is one of the things you have to address. So I'm trying to give you a basic approach to this. Um, things like that, I actually believe that statement has more to do with the understanding of ecclesia than than it does specifically with prayer as a subject because um, in Jesus promoting the idea of ecclesia and them understanding from the Greek concept that was it in the ecclesia you had to have a quorum of agreement that released an authority so Jesus was really saying just like in a business meeting when you come and say do we have a quorum which means are there the minimum amount of people present who, who, who can pass a judgment on this, who can pass a decision, Jesus was really saying in the context of ecclesia, where two or three come together in my name, you have a quorum. You, you have a place of authority. You have a, an arena in which you can speak um, legislation. Okay, Now, how that works into the atmosphere, how that works towards people... Um, in essence becomes a different, <coughs> a different question. <coughs> but if we just bring it down to the, okay, you know, so um, I need a new job. So if two or three of us come together, you know, and agree, um, I think that minimizes it. Um, I think that statement is a very powerful statement about changing the atmosphere of our world and uh, redirecting things. And governmentally... Um, which, of course, an ecclesia is about governmentally. When, when the government makes a decision, things don't happen immediately. What you put in place is everything that causes the whole culture and atmosphere to change. Uh, and I think in that context, we are changing more than just uh, little things about ourselves. I think that's more about the authority of the ecclesia, the church, um, changing the atmosphere of the world. So if I stand on the cop and 20,000 blokes all pray to God that Liverpool's going to win, well, that have any effect then yeah it doesn't always work that does it stay i'm sure you've (laughs) prayed that prayer many times 